Hey, hey, good morning. Good morning. I've got some announcements for you, so we'll just get to it. You got it? Yeah, you good? Okay, okay. <laughs> All right, so um, first, we're going to kick it off. Last week, we announced that we were going to do a barbecue to um, kind of end off the eating and drinking. Um, and as we reached out for volunteers, it was very apparent that that weekend was not going to work. So um, we're going to be changing it to uh, July 10th um, as we are, we're, we're having it because we're, we're ending the series, uh, eating and drinking, and that means, you know, doing that in community. So we want to be eating and drinking with people. So we're changing the date to July 10th at the same time. <laughs> So um, we want to get to know you um, and also get to know the people that are in your lives directly. So go ahead, um, invite them out. It's going to be outside in the parking lot for a barbecue. Um, and then if it is raining, you know, Jen, there is a rain plan. We'll be doing that indoors. Um, and then also uh, there is kids programming in the form of a movie and pizza. So Kids are, are going to be downstairs, they'll be having pizza, they'll be watching a movie, it should be a good time. Um, and it's going to be a really good time just to connect with um, one another, um, and I'm just really looking forward to that. Um, hopefully, it's not going to be raining, it's the second week of July, but we're in Washington, so <laughs> it's not a guarantee. Um, yeah, so uh, other details is that you don't actually need to RSVP, just show up. That's all I got for that, so booyah. Um, next thing is... Uh, <laughs> Jason's just laughing at me. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. My bad. You, hey, you told me to get up here, man. Put a mic in front of me. All right. Uh, <laughs> um, we also would love help with the uh, setup and teardown. So um, if you can just reach out on your communication cards at brookviewchurch.com, you can let us know that way. Um, so we would just love your help. Um, yeah. So, looking forward to seeing you then. Oh, also, on the original date, the 26th, we're going to be having regular service at our regular time. That's correct, Jason? Okay, so, there's still a church on the 26th. And then on the 10th, there won't be church in the morning, but barbecue in the afternoon. And then, yeah, woo, there we go. Um, the, the, next, um, the next thing I got for you is to fill out your online communication card, um, just because we love to hear from you, and we love to know that you're watching from home, um, and uh, take your prayer requests, and I think that's all I got for you guys. All right, passing it off. I love it when Trev gives announcements. And did you notice he got a haircut? Yeah, he did. It's sexy. It's good. You don't get enough of that from the pulpit. All right. Uh, I want to start today with a various, very uh, famous scene in the Bible. And I'm going to read it. And I just want you to try to visualize what's happening. This is very familiar to most of you, but try to feel the emotion in the scene. And if so, if it helps you, the passage will be up on the screen. If it helps to look at words, great. Uh, or maybe you just want to kind of close your eyes and take it in. But here we go. This is John chapter 13, starting with verse 1. 
It was just before the Passover meal. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to, to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus demonstrates his love through the, the deepest humility. Skip to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor as a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Notice, this is a story about Jesus eating and drinking with his apprentices. And as a part of it, practicing humble service. Here's a water basin. Okay, here's a practical need that I can meet. Like, this is the ancient world. There's no asphalt and there's no closed-toed shoes, right? The transportation was horses and donkeys. And so just try to imagine what feet were like in that world. Ew. Some of you have a, like a foot phobia, and right now you're just cre like trying not to heave right now. You're welcome for that. So the washing of feet was one of the lowest, most base kind of jobs. It was for the lowest of slaves. But Jesus is demonstrating the depth of what love looks like and then says to his followers, you should do as I have done for you. And that's exactly what the original apprentices of Jesus did. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Here are his apprentices just weeks later. Jesus has been crucified and raised and ascended to the Father, and they are left now to carry on the, the, his life and teaching. They're, they're left to live out all that he showed them. So a few weeks after the scene of washing Jesus, Jesus washing the feet, here, here they are now leading a whole new community. And here's how life in this new community looked. This is Acts chapter 2. This is Luke's description of what was going on in that community. He says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, so they ate together in homes, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes. There it is again. And ate together with glad and sincere hearts a third time for good measure, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Notice that, that in this short synopsis of 
the original church community, the one practice that is repeated, not once, not twice, but three times, is eating together. Verse 30, 40, 42, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. 46, they broke bread in their homes. And 46 again, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You guys, this is, this is the ancient world, and this is way before the printing press. So Luke didn't have access to, like, Microsoft Word, you know? So if you wanted to emphasize a point, you don't have italics or bold or, or an underline or highlighter feature. You have one option and one option only if you want to point something out. What do you do? You repeat it. So Luke was driving home the point, eating together was core to the original church. Decades later, the church grew and expanded all over the Mediterranean, and, and Paul wrote letters to various churches that are, you know, that are now in the New Testament. And you look at the picture of the church painted by Paul in those letters again and again. For instance, Romans chapter 16, he's, he's wrapping up the letter, and he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Colossians. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. In the letter to Philemon, Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your what? In your home. So notice the, the running theme from Jesus to the early church, to Paul's letters, and all through the New Testament, is Jesus' apprentices eating and drinking around a table in a home as family. The New Testament tells a story of how the church spread from just a few dozen people around a table with Jesus out into the streets of Jerusalem all through the Roman Empire to what it is today, this global historic movement numbering two plus billion. But, but the New Testament only records the story of the first few decades. And so one of the ways that you can go about telling the story of the church over the last 2,000 years is through the lens of architecture. And some of you are like, really? Are we going to talk about architecture? <laughs> Others of you are like, really? We're going to talk about architecture. <laughs> Just for a minute, okay? So in different periods, you, you actually can see dramatic shifts in church, in the philosophy of the church, in the way church was done by its architecture. In fact, one way that historians have divided kind of stages of, of church history is through various stages of corresponding church architecture. And depending on how you break it down, okay, there are roughly four stages of church architecture through history. So let me, let me run quickly through these. This is, this is interesting. In the beginning of the church, what was the church, church architecture? It's a home. It, what, what, what was the, it was simply a home. You guys think about this. For hundreds of years, almost 300 years, followers of Jesus built zero buildings. None. Why? Because when, when gathering to worship Jesus is illegal and you are on the run from a, gover, a government hit squad, you're not going to put a building up and a sign that tells everybody where you are. Right? So for hundreds of years, the home base for, for church, for all church, was simply a home. And the center of gravity at this stage was the table. 
Okay, this is where everything in the home happened. The, the table was where the deepest stuff happened in these church gatherings. Everything centered around the table. In time, as church communities grew larger and persecutions became lighter in certain places, the church sometimes did find community spaces for gathering. But even there, the table and the meal was still the centerpiece of everything that they were doing in their fellowship. Then, once the way of Jesus was legalized in the fourth century by who? Constantine. Good job, you guys. We're getting educated here. This is good. And, and, and we talk, so we talked about this a couple weeks back. When Constantine legalized Christianity, very suddenly the persecutions ended and Christianity gained favor. And the church, backed suddenly by the wealth and the power of the emperor, shifted. And rather than gathering in homes, they started building large, ornate cathedrals. And with this shift, the meal around a table devolved into a drink of wine and a bite of bread at the altar. So what happened in the experience of, quote, church completely changed. The home was replaced by the cathedral and the table by the altar. The center of everything that happened at church was at the altar. This was a totally different kind of feeling and expression of a Christian gathering. And here's, here's something else that I, I find super interesting. If you've ever been to one of those ancient cathedrals, how many of you have ever traveled like in Europe and you've been into one of those cathedrals? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. If you've been into one, you know everything echoes and sounds hollow in those places, and it is terrible for sound. Okay, so in a, in a place like that, a person couldn't actually teach and be heard well by a very large number of people, which is interesting. And so you come to find out that's because the space was not designed for teaching. The, the mass was actually said in Latin for hundreds of years, in spite of the fact that nobody actually spoke Latin, except for a few priests. So the point of church was to the liturgy. It was to stand and sit and recite things and partake in communion. It was not to be instructed in the way of Jesus. It was not to learn how to live out the gospel. It was to be made holy through ritual. And you guys, it stayed like this for more than a thousand years. Then in the, in the 16th century, Martin Luther and, and some of his friends and others began the Protestant Reformation, and they got very serious about the teaching of the Bible. And so in Protestant churches, preaching became the thing. Teaching people the Bible in their own language. They were like, this is important, and they were right. That was really important. And this was all a reaction to like the cathedral altar style of church. And so architecture evolved from a cathedral style to more of like a lecture hall or some would call it like colonial style. It would be, a, it'd be shaped like a, a box. Usually it was like a rectangle, and it could be anything from very complex and ornate, uh, beautiful architecture, or it could be super simple, like almost a barn kind of thing. But on either end of the spectrum, it basically served as a preaching box. It was designed for exactly what I'm doing right now. Teaching. <clears throat> Brilliantly. <laughs> And then the space doubled as, as kind of a, like a community center for the entire town. And that became a really important thing. And that's really cool. Um, but at that point, the center of gravity shifted away from the altar. And instead, the center of the experience became the pulpit. Okay, this raised 
area with a lectern or a stand or a book rest or whatever where the preacher stood to deliver the sermon. Okay, let's skip ahead to the beginning of the last century. There's another shift that took place in the early 1900s. What we see is the, the, the rise of entertainment culture. So with the rise of radio and TV and, and movies and film, something was happening that was changing culture. And, and with urbanization, as people were crowding more and more into cities, people would go out on the town for entertainment, right? They'd go to plays or ballet or orchestra or theaters now for movies or concerts. And in that same era, music began to play a different role, a much larger role in churches. Now, worship by singing has always been around. I mean, it was, it was around way before even the time of Jesus. That wasn't new. But the em- emphasis on corporate worship by singing, it had become suddenly a much bigger deal at church. And so with it, the church evolved from a lecture hall style to kind of like a theater style. So the acoustics in the space became super important, not only for hearing the sermon, but even more for the music. So the corporate worship experience became a really big deal. And with the morphing of lecture halls into theaters, the center of gravity in the service shifted from the pulpit to the stage. An elaborate stage that would replace kind of the simple pulpit of lecture halls because worship through music became on par with the sermon. Now just out of curiosity, how in the world do you even categorize what we are in right now? I mean, what, what era would sort of best define this? And here's, what I, here's my stab at it. Um, I, I think it was originally built, this church was originally built very much in the lecture hall sort of theme. Okay, it, it was. But then what happened is somebody came along and said, no, no, we're going to be hip and cool. <laughs> and we're going to turn this thing into a, into a theater with a stage and the whole, like, there used to be classrooms on both sides right here, and the pastor would, you guys, literally, the pastor, I'm told, would sit in the office, prepare the sermon, everyone would come to church, he would come out of his office door, up to the pulpit, preach the sermon, say amen, and go back into his office. <laughs> so it was a, a lecture hall kind of thing, and then eventually somebody came in, this, the, the church changed hands a couple times, somebody came in and put a stage in here and tried to turn this thing into a theater. Is this an amazing theater? Amen. Yes, it is. We are blessed to be here. Um, but all of that stuff happened before we moved in. And so we just sort of inherited this, this situation. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not like moralizing these shifts. My point today is not to tell you what's good or bad. I'm just trying to lay out for us what's happened. And I want us to see that with each shift, there are things about the modern church that we now assume are normal, such as a theater design, rows facing a stage, that were not always normal. They weren't normal at all in the very beginning. Now this, again, this is not all, all bad, but it's telling that the original architecture of the church, at least for the three, first 300 years or so, Far beyond that in some places, like still to this day in places like China, right, and the Middle East where we're gathering in Christian community is still illegal. The original architecture of the church was a table in a home. And that says something about what the church at its core is. Did you know that the word Christian 
is only used three times in the entire New Testament. Three times, you guys. There, there are two other far more dominant words for what you and I are in relationship to Jesus and, and in relationship to one another. The first word is mathetes in Greek. And it means learner or disciple or student or apprentice. Now, compared to three times the word Christians use, it's used 268 times in the New Testament. Okay, the other word, adelphoi in Greek, it gets translated as like brothers or sisters. Or if you have like a really cool King James or other older version of the Bible, it gets translated as brethren, which I kind of dig that. I, like, would you guys love that if, if I just got up here every morning and every time it's just like, good morning, brethren. Okay, so Adelphoi, it just means like brothers and sisters. It means like family. And it's, it's used upwards of how many times? 350 times in the New Testament. And it goes all the way back to Jesus, who called his disciples his Adelphoi. He said things like, whoever does God's will is my Adelphoi, my brother and sister and mother. So you guys, what we call church is by definition apprentices of Jesus who live as family. So it should come as no surprise that the original architecture of the church was a table in a home. In fact, the weekly gathering itself was on a Sunday night. Why? Because Sunday was a work day. In the ancient world, Sunday was like the first day of first work day of the week. It was like Monday is to us. Okay, so so they gathered, they decided to start gathering on Sundays to celebrate what? The resurrection. Good job, Beulah. You get extra credit. <laughs> this thing happened with Jesus. Some of you, we should talk about this. This is called the resurrection. So, <laughs> so they, they started gathering on Sundays, which was really weird because these are Jewish people. They'd always gathered on Saturday, right? They moved their gatherings to Sunday, but they had to do it on Sunday night because everyone had to work because Sunday was the first work day of the week. So they gathered in the evening after work. Where did they gather? In a home. To do what? to eat a meal together to remember and honor Jesus and to learn the way of Jesus and to love one another as family. Now, it's not that they like ate a meal before or after the main event of the gathering. You guys, here's the thing. The meal was the main event. It was the main event. In fact, the original followers of Jesus had a name for their weekly meeting. They didn't call it church. Does anybody know what they called it? Does it like, anyone want to nerd out? Can anyone nerd out? What did they call their original gathering? Anybody know? The way. Well, they called themselves the way. That's good. Dinner. Dinner. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> okay, you guys, some of you, you know, those of you that are, that you can, man, if you live through, oh, this is going to be good. Here's what they called it. They called it the love feast. How 60s is that? The love feast. So in Greek, it was called the agape feast. It was a very specific, deep kind of love, right? They didn't call it church. They called it by what it, what it was. They called it the agape meal, something that they had learned directly from Jesus. And what did these love feasts look like? Well, word was getting out in the Roman Empire that there were a group of, of unusual people getting together to have love feasts, and, and it, it, it attracted some interest. <laughs> so, you know, just like we should ask, what, what did they do at one of these 
love feasts. What happened around one of these tables? Well, there's a famous description uh, from a church leader from the second century, and his name is Tertullian, and he was born a little over 100 years after Jesus. So he's coming along a few generations after this has gotten some traction, a few generations after what we just read in the book of Acts. And he gives a great description of a typical love feast. Um, so here, here it goes. Check it out. He says, Our feast explains itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape. Whatever it costs, our outlay in the name of piety is gain. He's like, yes, it takes time and money, but it is so, so worth it. Since with the good things of the feast, we benefit the needy. So those that had means, they were the ones that would provide the feast and include those who did not have means. So the very church, the gathering itself was an act of social justice. He goes on. As with God himself, a particular respect is shown to the lowly. The participants, before reclining, which is what you would do after you finished the meal, he's saying, before we got done eating, uh, would sort of lean back at the table. He said the participants, before reclining, taste first of prayer to God. So they're tasting of the meal, they're tasting of prayer to God. As much is eaten as satisfied the cravings of hunger, people ate as much as they, as they wanted to. As much as drunk as befits the chaste. People eat and drink as much as they want, but they don't drink too much wine. Okay. And then check this out. After, each is asked to stand forth and sing, as he can, a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composing. As the feast commended or began with prayers, so the, with prayer it was closed. I love how simple this all was. I mean, I just, you get together, you pray, you eat, you worship, and you guys caught how worship happened? You take turns standing by yourself to sing a song. I was thinking we should begin to institute that this morning. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if that's how we did worship here? Talk about seeker sensitive. So just like, hey, Kate. It's your turn. Stand up and sing a song, sweetheart. You're going to do something from Hillsong or Bethel, or did you compose this one yourself? Oh, that was beautiful, sweetheart. Bob, your turn. Right? I would clear the place out. It'd be, it'd be so good. So yeah, everyone has a turn to sing, and then, and then you pray again. Um, now, there are other writings that describe the early church, and there's, there's a lot of writings that include, there was teaching that went on, and, and there were a few other things that happened. So there was definitely more, but you look at just how simple it all was, the love feast, the agape meal, the church. So what does it say about today's church that we call our weekly gathering a service? As if it's the pastor's job to provide goods and services to the religious consumer rather than a love feast where we come together around a table as family. You guys, things have really morphed and changed over 2,000 years. So here's, here's what I'm saying. Central to our apprenticeship to Jesus is eating and drinking with other apprentices of Jesus. It's finding ways to do life together as family. 
This is how people followed Jesus originally. Church has morphed into something else. These days, people think of it as a building or a service to attend. It's not, it's not wrong to have a building. It's not wrong to have a service. I'm not saying that, okay? We're not just like, we're radically changing everything we do. I'm saying that, that we need to do everything we can within reason to recapture who we are. And who are we? Well, we are students. We're, we're learners or apprentices of Jesus learning to live his way together as family. And in our day and age, churches are of all kinds are trying to sort of recapture this. This is not hidden. People understand that this is, this is what's gone on. And they're trying to, to do, there's all sorts of creative things out there trying to recapture this. I think it's awesome. I think it's also really hard. Because in our culture, through our experiences, we have been so conditioned to think of church as something else. And so this will require a ton of patience and grace and persistence and creativity. And so we need to constantly be asking, how can we come together as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers? How can we come together as a Delphoi, as family? And so to that end, we have two more weeks of this series after today. And then, as Trevor mentioned, on July 10th, we're going to do church in a different way. We're, get, get this, we're going to move it to a Sunday evening. How original is that? <laughs> and it's going to revolve around eating and drinking. I, I love that you said that like 30 times. Eating and drinking. And we're going to have a barbecue and it's going to be outside. And you guys, we're going to come together as family. Now, this is not going to solve all of our problems, right? It's not going to make us completely not institutional. This is a small step toward helping us be relational and connect. It's a small step toward helping us be family together. And if you're nervous, I just want to say no one is going to ask you to stand up and sing all by yourself. Okay, we aren't going to try to replicate everything. There's certain things that you just have to let them die. <laughs> but if, if, if you were here, if you were here for it, what will this look like? It'll look a lot like the brunch that we did. Ex that we did in March, except it's going to be outside in the evening, in the summer. It's going to be 72 degrees, and the birds are going to be singing. <laughs> and we'll have conversation guides at the table on cards written out to facilitate community. And there will be table hosts that are at each table to help keep things invitational and warm. But it will be family coming together to eat and drink, and also, as Trevor said, inviting people in our lives who we think would benefit from it. I mean, you may have coworkers or friends or family or whatever that you're like, I would like you to just in a casual way meet some people from my church or get, get a sense of what it is. And it's not going to be like, a, like church service like we normally do. It's going to be sitting around eating, eating burgers with people and visiting and talking about life. It's going to be awesome. So maybe you have somebody that would benefit from that. But I'm just really excited about this. You know, Jen and I have been dreaming about this with Trevor for months and months. I, I'm, I'm excited about this because I think that this whole thing is a lost practice. And when you think about it, eating and drinking together as family, it hasn't just been lost, a lost art in the church. It's being lost in all of society. And more and more research is coming out about the effects of that on human flourishing. I mean, it turns out that eating together is foundational for human flourishing. Research is now showing that there is a direct corollary between how many times a family eats together each week and how children do in all sorts of arenas. For example, 
Children and families that don't eat together regularly are 40% more likely to be obese, as well as higher risk for teenage pregnancy, drug and alcohol abuse, depression, anxiety. Whereas children and families that eat together regularly just do better as a general rule. They have higher graduation rates, they have better relationships with mom and dad and peers and the whole thing. Some health professionals, they go so far as to say that the solution for well-being is simple, like eat together as a family. And there's even some evidence that neurobiologically, the happiest that humans ever are is around a table with family and friends. The only way to improve on, uh, upon that happiness, you guys, get this, the only way to improve on it is to, is to do it outside. <laughs> Which is really a bummer if you live in Western Washington. I mean, my gosh, you guys, it's June. Let's go. Can anyone tell me why we've all decided to live here? <laughs> like, we chose this, you guys. I know why we're all here. The Mariners. <laughs> right? Uh, okay, but like, when, when you envision, okay, when you envision the image of a family around a table and you just kind of get that idea, it is becoming less and less common. And there's all kinds of reasons. I mean, so many, just uh, like youth sports, right? And, and single parent families and dual income families and, and on and on. And so the pressures uh, and challenges, they're real. This, they're legit. But our, our inability to eat together is, is actually changing how we experience family. The average American family now spends the same amount on fast food as they do on groceries every month. <laughs> The average American eats one out of five meals in the car. What's normal for us is to just kind of live life on the go, and this is increasing and ramping up all the time. Only 17% of American families regularly sit down for a meal, 17%. And if they do find time, guess how long they spend together at the table eating. I, I heard a stat a few weeks ago about this. It blew my mind. Just to put this into perspective, give you a little baseline. 60 years ago, okay, 60 years ago, the average family meal time was an hour and a half. So when a family sat down for dinner, about an hour and a half. Does anyone want to guess the average meal time for a modern family when they do actually carve out space to sit down together? Did you say seven minutes? That's dark, dude. <laughs> Give me a little drum roll. The average in our generation is 12 minutes. 12 minutes. Okay, you guys, this is, this is not just an issue in the church. It's everywhere in our world. So today, I'm going to throw out a, just a very simple idea. Super simple. What if we created regular space to eat with people in our inner circle. Now, a lot of times when we think of hospitality, like all through this series, when we've been thinking about hospitality and eating and drinking, a lot of us are envisioning, and part of it's because I've pointed us in this direction, we're thinking of Jesus and mission, and we're thinking of like including coworkers that we barely know, or neighbors that we haven't met yet, or people that are in you know, serious financial situations that we actually don't know very well. We, we, we kind of tend to think of people that are not inner core people. 
And that's good, right? Like, we, we should do that whenever we can. Like, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, and we should work to be expanding our circles when, when we can do that. But here's the thing. Jesus also ate with his inner circle a whole lot. He, he ate at the good home of his friends Mary and, and Martha and Lazarus. He ate many, many, many meals with just his disciples, and the most famous uh, uh, a meal of all is the Last Supper. And it was just eating and drinking with his, his innermost circle. So what I want us to do today is to think about creating like regular space for people in our inner circles. So I would just ask you to think for a second, like who is in your inner circle? Maybe it's your immediate family, you know, your spouse, your kids, your roommates, Maybe it's extended family. Or maybe your mom and dad are living nearby or your brothers or sisters or cousins. Or maybe you have really good friends that you, that you trust and that, that you enjoy. So who, who is it that's in your inner circle? Be very different for all of you. And then the second part of it is what would it look, out, look like to carve out regular space? And by that I mean something that's rhythmic and regular and predictable, something that everybody can plan around and look forward to. So maybe you can't eat dinner with your immediate family every night. I mean, it's just with your schedule and all the, the, the going on with the kids or whatever, it's just impossible. So my question then would be, could you carve out a space to do it maybe once a week? Because that's a whole lot better than never, right? Or, or what might be possible if you, if you made it a party? How, how could this look for you? If life is crazy and schedules are tough, then what, what can you do? What can you feasibly do? Is there any way to create something that's regular? And then think about outside your immediate family. Could you schedule something with your parents if they live in the area, maybe once a month? Or could you set up something with your friends that would be a regular thing? Like every so often, we're going to go do this thing together. We're going to gather at so-and-so's house. We're going to whatever it would be. Could you set up something that would be predictable and regular, maybe once a month or whatever works? And then who's in your inner circle? Who would that be? Now, if you're like super careful about COVID, I get it. Like, I, that, so my question would be then, is there anybody who's already kind of in your COVID bubble? Is there anybody that you actually would feel safe eating with? Maybe even if it's outside. Like, could, could you set up some kind of rhythm with whoever that is? And I think this is a big deal because, here's why I think it's a big deal. Because I've seen it be a really big deal. <laughs> again and again and again. So to kind of close this message today, I just, I just want to give you some examples of, of how I've seen this be a big deal. And maybe it'll spark some ideas for you guys. Um, Kate just graduated from George Fox University with a master's degree. And um, in her final three years down there, she lived off campus and she always had three roommates at a time. And so there would be four of them in this really awesome little house. And um, these girls were all college athletes. Some were uh, track, some were, were basketball. And so they were busy and they had very tricky schedules. But every semester, they would come together at the beginning of the semester. They would compare schedules. They would look at their classes and their work and their sports and all of it and find a common night, a night to have what they called roommate dinner. Brilliant, idea. you know, what a name, what a name for this thing. 
And so what would happen is one of the four of them would make dinner for everybody, and then they would just rotate, take turns week by week. Um, and, and while that one person made dinner for everybody, what did the other three people do? They sang. <laughs> oh, the hills are alive. I, I like that idea. Actually, they, they cleaned. So one person's making dinner, and while that's happening, the others are cleaning. So they get like a, every week, at least once a week, they would get like a 30 to 45-minute blitz of the house, and then they would sit together and have dinner together in a clean house. Now, these meals usually lasted at least an hour, so they, like, they really carved out time. And among other things that would happen, they'd, they'd always share three things, okay? They could talk about a whole host of things, but they would always include these three. Roses, thorns, and buds. Okay, so something good from the week that just happened, a rose. Something crappy from the week that just happened, a thorn. And something that they were looking forward to, a bud, okay? Now, these were college students, and so maybe when you heard that they shared buds, <laughs> you got a different kind of image in your mind. Uh, so it means something that you're excited about coming in the, in the, in the week to come, okay? Uh, something that might hopefully turn into a rose. Um, but this simple idea of weekly roommate dinner, it, it was a really big deal for Kate over those three years. This little group of roommates functioned more like family, and it was really beautiful for them. It was a deeper kind of community, and I just want to say, one of them happens to be here visiting with us this morning. Yeah, Emily, good timing. And I just want to say you're awesome. You're awesome, and thank you for the gift that you are. Whew, stop it. <laughs> anyway, you've been, a, you've been a big deal to Kate. Just like, thank you for who you've been and your gift to our family, so. <clears throat> Enough of that. <laughs> Back to you guys and back to, back to those of you online. Just question for you. Is there anyone you could schedule something like this with in your life? Maybe something weekly that would make sense for your people. Um, and here's the thing. It takes thought and it takes planning and it takes commitment. But it can be really, really beautiful if you pull it off. Um, let me give you another example. Jen is, uh, she's part of a blended family. Jen's dad, Ron is uh, he has three kids and married a woman, Linda, who has four. And so after all of the kids were, were out of the house, it was really important to them to keep them all connected. So they decided that the first Sunday of every month would be family lunch. Um, and all the kids and grandkids would come over in the afternoon for lunch and they would stay until they didn't wanna stay anymore. They had to leave for something. So seven grown kids and their kids all together every month. And Ron and Linda would feed everybody. It was usually a casserole or something simple. And, um, and the adults would all hang out and they would catch up and talk and the kids would play together. You notice kids can always seem to figure out a way to play together. Just like doesn't, they will find a way. And so Ron and Linda and, and Jen's siblings, both Bio and Step, they all live up north um, near Bellingham. 
And so the first Sunday of every month after church, we'd, we'd pack, for us, we would pack up our kids as soon as we could get out of church. We would drive to Ferndale, again, right up by Bellingham by the Canadian border. And we made this a huge priority in our schedule. And the reality is pretty much all of Jen's siblings did. Now, there were obviously times when somebody couldn't make it with sports and schedules and all of that. And sometimes a few of the grandkids were gone or maybe one of, you know, one family, one entire family was gone. For us, if there was like, you know, our kids are engaged in a lot of sports. So if there was a game for one of our kids that conflicted, then what we would do is just send that kid with a teammate and their family. Um, the rest of us were gone. We're like, good luck. Hope, you, hope, you, hope it goes well. We are going to Ferndale for the first Sunday of the month. And we had to really work to make this a priority, but it was a prior, priority. And I will tell you that after 20 years of doing this, you guys, it was so worth it. I mean, like I grew up with a single mom and almost no extended family. And my mom passed away many years ago, but Jen's family just sort of grafted me in. And I, I have this family that I belong to. And my kids, they know their cousins and they know their aunts and their uncles. And here's, here's what I will tell you. Without the first Sunday of the month, all of those people would just be strangers to us. They would be people that we hear about, but they would not be people that we know. And so for Jen and I, we, we watched the, all these little kids grow all the way up. I mean, some are married now. 20 years, of, 20 years of showing up once a month for a few hours created something very special for us. Now, it's not, it wasn't perfect, but it was really good. And so again, back to you. Is there anyone in your world, in your group of friends, maybe just like one friend, someone that you could maybe connect with on a, on a regular basis? You're just sort of scheduling around it, maybe monthly. Maybe it could be extended family. Is there something that you could set up that would be that would be really good. And, and you go, well, what would that look like? It totally depends. And right here, I'm, I'm tempted to like give you guys all, all these ideas. Um, but I've asked Jen to speak on this in a few weeks. And so you're gonna get Jen in a couple weeks. Um, and I'll tell you what, she is a master at making a mealtime meaningful and doing it in a way so that people connect. So she's gonna come in here and she's gonna give you guys all of her secrets and it's gonna be really good. I also want to say, um, and I can't say this strongly enough, sometimes relationships cannot revolve around a meal, right? For whatever logistical reason, food cannot be at the center. You can still connect in some regular way. Anything that generates a depth of conversation and lives interacting will work. If, even if you can't do it over a meal, Find another way. Do it. Um, our, our family is big on scheduling like regular times to connect. This is kind of what we do. Now, we prefer food. Um, but in certain instances, that's just not possible. Like logistically, it's just not. And for many of you with, with cer certain people in your inner circle, that's the case right now. Um, so what do you do? Well, you do whatever you can do. Um, and we've had to get creative with our kids. Like, uh, two oldest kids these past few years with Kate living in Oregon. Um, we just set it up that we talked every Tuesday night for the last two years. Um, I had a men's group that met right here at the church on Tuesdays. And so every week on the drive home um, around nine o'clock, Kate and I would talk and we would catch up. And it was like, you know, it's a 20 minute drive to my house from here, but we'd usually get to talking about something, right? And so I'd have to extend the drive. <laughs> 
um, or with gas prices, I would just sit in the driveway. <laughs> but we'd get going and we'd start talking about life. And uh, for Kate, this, I won't get into it, this was an especially tough year. And so we would just process all of that every week. And then we would talk about all the beautiful things too and then just some lighthearted stuff. But man, you guys, I so looked forward to that. It was so cool. And then most of you know uh, Cameron, my 21-year-old son, lives in Haiti. And he has had a long, hard journey. He is doing amazingly well. He's now lived in Haiti. Can you believe this? He's lived in Haiti three years. Um, he's teaching English. He lives in an apartment with some really good friends, a young couple. And there's a ton of meaning and beauty in his life. But, but even with him in Haiti, our family has stayed uber-connected to Cam. Jen and Kate and I, and in certain seasons, Brooklyn as well, have all had a weekly time to talk with him on the phone. For me, I talk to Cam every Tuesday from 4 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. And you guys, we've been doing this for almost three years, and it is really cool. We can't eat together, right? I mean, we would if we could, but we can talk at a heart level, and we can do it in a really regular, predictable kind of way. And this is so cool, you guys. This, this last fall, Cam and I were, we were doing our normal Tuesday afternoon chat. And all of a sudden, he's like, hey, Dad, I was watching church online this past week. And I was like, tell me what you liked. <laughs> no, I, I, didn't, I didn't interrupt. And, and uh, he's like, I was watching church online this past week, and I got, I got the sense that God is inviting me just into something deeper with him. And I sense that I, I've kind of been staying at a surface level, um, and, and he has a lot more for me. So he, he's waiting for me to step toward him in some way. And he said, he said, it's like God is saying to me, Cam, I want to be close to you, and I'm here, but you have to, you have to move toward me. So he's like, so I've been thinking about that, and, and, but I, I, don't, I don't really know what to do. I don't know what that would look like. I figured, he said, I figured you might be a good person to talk to. And so, would you help me figure out what to do? And then would you mind if we, like, talked less about the Seahawks and the Mariners and COVID and vaccinations, and we start, just started talking more about God? <laughs> no. <laughs> right? No, he's like, do you think you could help me figure out a way to organize my life to be able to draw closer to God? And then we could just sort of check in and talk about that. And I'll tell you guys what, when you're a dad and you're a pastor, that's like one of the best conversations you could ever have with one of your kids. And with everything that Cam has been through, I mean, it was just that much sweeter. So I was all in, right? So, so in taking into consideration his personality and his circumstances, we decided to try something and see how it would go. So he decided he would start reading through, maybe start reading through at least one and try, try it with Paul's letters, New Testament letters. So he started with Galatians, something small. <laughs> he could get to the end of it and go, I did that. Um, and so he would watch the Bible Project video on it and get some background of, of it, and then he would read it a couple chapters at a time, and he would write down any verses or thoughts or ideas that were hitting him along the way. He'd usually do about two chapters at a time, so this would happen over a couple days. And then he would come back uh, a day later at when he was done with all of that, and he would pick one of those verses, and he would soap on it. So he would, like, journal about that verse in a very personal way. 
And then when we would talk on Tuesday on the phone, he would share the verses with me and he'd tell me about why they stuck out and what stuck out and why. And he would read his soap and then we would, we would talk about that together and what that, what that all looks like in his life. So he tried it one week with Galatians and it went really well. So you guys, this was last fall. He's been doing this every week with a different book, watching the video, writing down verses, soaping, talking to me. He has now covered almost the entire New Testament. And it is the coolest thing. I cannot tell you. And the thing is, he's not just filling his head with Bible information or checking off a box and saying, I did these spiritual practices, now God must be happy with me. He's thinking about his life. He's thinking about who God is. He's thinking about where he's at and what's in his future And he's walking through all of it with a deeper and deeper faith and connectedness to to the Father. And so you can just see the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace. You can just see it in them. It's been unbelievable. But here's the thing. Cam and I, we would eat together if we could, right? We can't. So we've had to get creative and do what we can. But what I will tell you is, it has been so worth it. Now, back to you. Is there anyone in your inner circle that you could create regular space to connect with? I mean, if you can do it over a meal, by all means, do that. But if you can't, then you do what you can. So what could you institute? Who could you invite? Who could be a part of this? What kind of regular rhythm might work for you and work for them? Maybe it's gathering in your home on a regular schedule, or maybe you have to get creative in some way and you have to go somewhere else, or you're going to have to use technology or whatever. Whatever it is, do it. Um, Kate had the idea of, of roommate dinner. Of course it was her idea. And it blessed those girls. It did. Ron and Linda thought up the first Sunday of the month. And it has been a huge blessing to so many. So my question is, what if God used you to create some sort of transformational community? Who in your inner circle would be blessed by something? Get creative and pull the trigger on it. Father in heaven, I thank you for your vision of what community can be and what, what fellowship can be and what, what church is supposed to be. And um, as we at Brookview just 
continue to, to be creative and think together about how do we come together as family and not have this be an institutional process, but how do we actually live together as family? Um, I thank you for those that, that, that bring so much to the table in that regard and creating different spaces and, and ways to do that. And But I think about the, the people in our lives as well that, that don't know you, but they're still a part of our inner circle. And those that do know you and are a part of our inner circle, God, would you, would you give us visions for how to generate community around a table if possible, but if not, in whatever way we need to? Would you make us people who bring life and healing by enabling us to, um, to gather and um, to initiate things? God, I pray that you would bring specific people to our minds right now if you haven't been already. I pray you'd give us ideas and then help us to actually pull this stuff off because it is worth it. In Jesus' name.